Recorded live. I'd like to welcome everybody to episode five of Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren. And I'm Jim. And uh, this is Scuba Obsessed. We're uh, excited that everybody could come up. we got some quite a bit of activity in the chat room tonight. Um, we also have uh, special guests. We have a uh, fellow diver, uh, Bob Sweeney from the Mud Club. Hi, Bob. Hello. How you doing tonight? Uh, not too bad. Survived an evening of racquetball already, so <laughs> this is relaxation. Oh, wow. Some, some physical activity. Yes. Got to keep in shape for the diving. Oh, definitely you do. Uh, I, I need to get back in the running here. Uh, the priorities. Everything is geared towards uh, geared towards diving, isn't it? Oh, well, the, what other priority yeah, is there? <laughs> right. Should there be any? Okay. To uh, and I'll give we'll give a little background. I uh, we'll let Bob speak for himself. But what I what I think is going to what we'll find interesting tonight is uh, Bob is a tech diver, and he does a lot of the diving that both Jim and I I believe we hope that we're going to be able to get to do someday. Uh, get down on deep on some of those wrecks, and Bob also does some rebreathing. And so, uh, Bob, what got you started in diving? What what interests you in diving the first to begin with? Well, I, I started actually uh, back at, after I joined the Navy. My best friend uh, in the Navy was uh, already certified as a diver, and uh, he talked me into actually taking the lessons. And so I got certified out when I was living in Oahu back in 1978, uh, did some diving. And then mostly I was a vacation diver for uh, many, many years uh, until after we moved up here and uh, out of the blue, my wife decided she wanted to learn how to dive. She'd always had no interest in it up till then, and she just she was happy to just snorkel. But one day she decided she wanted to dive, and after she got certified, uh, she wanted to dive more. And uh, so we started looking around here, and uh, pretty much it all went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> started finding the joys of cold water diving, and uh, um, got a, got it together with some very good folks. Uh, I actually joined two separate uh, diving clubs, uh, the Diamond Divers and the Mud Club. The Diamond Divers doesn't exist anymore, but uh, uh, due to that, I was getting a lot of diving done for as a recreational diver. Um, and then finally, during one of the Mud Club, uh, or actually it was a party we had before the annual uh, midnight dive, uh, one of the guys was showing a videotape of a shipwreck, the the Barney actually, which is located in uh, Rogers City in Upper Michigan in Lake Huron, and it sits about I think it was 147 feet, 150 feet, something like that. I believe the deck is. Uh, right around 140 or something like that. Anyway, I saw that video, and that was the first shipwreck that I'd ever seen that was actually looked like a ship rather than a pile of sticks on the on the bottom, which is the typical stuff you see in the recreational depths here at Lake Michigan. And that's what really got me keyed into wanting to learn how to do tech diving so I could go on to a ship like that. Uh, when was that that you, you started in the tech diving? Oh, gee. Uh, it's probably been six years ago now. It's when I actually, yeah, when I started seriously, get, when, that's when I started looking into it and uh, as to what it was going to take to get into the tech diving. 
so what was the first type of tech diving that you did? You know, so what, like, say I, I was going to get the tech diving, what's the natural progression from recreational? Oh, okay. Well, uh, it all depends on the agency where you get certified through. And I, I can't speak for any other agencies uh, other than I took the NAWI uh, technical classes. Uh, the, I went through uh, the SAS scuba up in Battle Creek, uh, Rick SAS is the technical diver up there and the owner of the shop, uh, extremely good diver and a lot of fun to be around too. But uh, I got into it and the first class was just basically what they called an extended range class, which taught you the basics to decompression diving, uh, what it was, and uh, also uh, diving, um, you know, doing deeper dives with uh, air only. They don't do that quite as much nowadays, but... <laughs> It was, you know, diving down to up to about 170 feet on air, uh, and uh, let's see, also uh, what they call advanced nitrox, which would be learning uh, handling oxygen levels up to uh, 100% oxygen. So that that's basically the the start. Now I know now he's changed their layout, but that's more or less the type of thing. I think now they have actually an equipment class that you take first, which is getting you used to diving with the new type, all the new equipment that you'll be uh, going with when you do t- get into the technical field. And then once you've done that, basically that's your first step in the technical diving. Then you can start going into looking at uh, getting mixed gas training. And there's uh, usually two to three different levels of uh, mixed gas training. And there's uh, other classes you can get into also for specialties, cave diving, things along that line. So what makes it technical? Is it the depth, or is it just that it's a little bit more exotic and that you've got the, the mixed gases? <laughs> well, actually, technical diving, uh, I think the best explanation, I'm trying to remember, I was thinking about this today, and I'm trying to remember who actually said I believe it was Rick Sass. But his definition of technical diving is any time, you are technical diving any time the surface is not an option. In recreational diving, in theory, you can anytime there's a problem, you should be able to go directly to the surface with no problem. You you know you don't have to make it the 15 foot safety stop. That's just that's all it is, a safety stop. But you should theoretically be able to go straight to the surface. Technical diving, that's not an option either because you have a decompression obligation or you're in some type of an overhead environment typically, such as if you've done a wreck penetration, you're inside a wreck. Uh, or you're in a cave. So those pretty much automatically make you in. You're doing technical-type diving anytime you can't get to the surface. So because of that, as a technical diver, you need the extra training and the specialized equipment to know how to use it, uh, uh, the training to know how to use that equipment, because you need to be able to solve the problem where you're at. And in a lot of cases, it's basically having redundant air supplies. Um, and also the buddy system to work together to solve solve your problem and get yourself safely back to the surface. Okay. That, <laughs> no, 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 that makes sense. It makes sense yeah. to me. The the explanation of, of a ceiling um, basically makes it makes it uh, makes the difference and makes it more understandable for people who have got more of a recreational training background. Uh, anytime you can't ascend directly to the surface um, calls for more training and that's uh, that's pretty much in a nutshell what you said right yeah yeah pretty much yeah okay. uh, you know 
I, I mean, like I said, decompression diving is probably the most the thing that most people think about whenever you're talking about technical diving. And uh, technical diving, uh, you've seen technical divers, they've got all this extra equipment and stuff like that, but it's, it's all there for a purpose. It's got a specific requirement. Um, technical diving is also a lot more uh, structured than recreational diving. Recreational diving, you can pretty much, granted, we always say uh, plan your dive, dive your plan. Recreational, typically, most people are past the beginner stage say, well, what are we going to do out there? Well, let's go out. We'll spend an hour. Uh, we'll go this direction, and we'll come back. You know, the dive plan is usually pretty loose uh, for most of But whereas in technical diving, you're planning, you know, maybe uh, days or weeks ahead of time for a specific dive. Uh, if I know that I'm going to be doing a, let's say I'm going to dive the um, Florida, uh, which is in Lake Huron. Uh, Florida sits in, I think, right about 205 feet of water, okay? So I'm going to make a dive on the Florida. Well, my planning first off is, what am I planning on breathing? Okay, what type of emits should I breathe? Uh, typically on that, you can do a trimix, uh, which is a helium-oxygen-nitrogen mixture, and you make a decision as to what type of mixture is best for that type of a dive. Uh, you also have to look at the decompression. It says, okay, I want to go down. How long do I want to spend on the bottom? Well, depending on how long you spend on the bottom will determine how much air or mixed gas you need to have while you're down there. You know, you, you calculate going down to the wreck during the time that you're on the wreck. All right? Now, after the t- that time, you now have to be able to come back up. You need to be carrying whatever gases you need to do the decompression. Usually those are a combination of the gas that you have on your back plus uh, stage bottles, which you have attached to your side. And these stage bottles can uh, have different gases. Typically, they're nitrox gases, uh, anywhere from 50% ni- uh, nitrox to maybe 32 or 36%, depending on your dive plan. You may also have a bottle of 100% oxygen. You calculate out exactly how much gas you need in order to perform all these different parts, uh, not only the dive itself, but also the decompression. And then you look and see, well, what kind of tanks do I have to have? And if you don't have that size of tank with adequate margin, you might go and say, well, instead of spending 30 minutes on that wreck, let me cut it back to 20 minutes and see how my margin is. So oh. there's a, more, a lot more planning involved. Uh, of course, once you've done it for a while, uh, you know, one 200-foot dive at 30 minutes is the same as another 200-foot, you know, and you get them memorized more or less. So the planning's a lot faster and easier. But anytime I'm doing something new or different, um, you may, you know, you've got to go back to the drawing board and sit and think about it and figure out, okay, what am I going to do? What kind of tanks am I taking? And what gases am I planning on breathing? Well, it, it makes sense when you take, for example, uh, uh, Darren and I, if we go out to a, a lake and we're diving, and, and our plan is pretty much exactly what you uh, had said. Uh, sounds familiar, doesn't it, Darren? It sure um, does. We're just going to go out there and we'll just kind of hang out there. And when we hit uh, 800 uh, uh, PSI left in the tank, we'll we'll surface and kind of see where we're at. You know, the extra planning sounds kind of tedious at first, but when you think about um, 
the the severity of the situation should you not planning plan it accordingly um that ceiling that we talked about earlier uh, could hit pretty hard if you've uh, cut yourself short couldn't it oh yes very much so that's when how people get bent uh is when uh they don't plan make the adequate plan or they're way too uh, uh they push the limit a little bit too hard or you know there's a lot of different things that can go into it and cause you you know some uh, definite heartache but uh you know that's all part of the classes and it's, it, most of those classes are pretty interesting. They teach you how to do it out basically longhand, which is always a lot of fun. Learning all because you know you know all the formulas and things like that. If anybody's taken nitrox class, uh, you know the, these are just kind of extensions upon those classes and some of the formulas you had in the nitrox classes. Um, then you get into uh, once you're actually doing it. There's lots of software out there that will do the decompression planning for you. I've got a couple of different packages that I use myself that uh, work just cheeky, and that's what I use uh, rather than doing longhand. Now, as far right, as but, the... Go ahead. But you know the you know the theory and everything about why the formulas work, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of like using a calculator versus being able to do the math on a sheet of paper. Um, once you understand well, right. how yeah. the math is, uh, that's kind of the important part. And then you can let the the calculator or the computer calculate it for you from there. But you've got to have a basic understanding. So that that's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Were you yeah say that way. That way. Uh, I was going to say ahead. that way. If in case the software in case the software goes uh, kind of uh, bad on you, it just gives you something. You go, hey, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Maybe I entered <laughs> something incorrectly or yeah. something like that. You yeah, there's for it. yeah, there's no way I got seven hours in the bottom. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You get you get to know. You know, typically for me, uh, uh, when I'm de- I I don't dive the open circuit on the deep depths anymore. But like on my rear grader, if I'm doing 30 minutes at 200 foot, typically that's about uh, an hour back to the surface. So you're looking at about an uh, an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes total run time, typically for 30 minutes at 200 feet. So that's you know, I look at that, uh, and that's, that, that's my uh, plan, part of my planning right there is, now, what do I need, what gases do I want? I may change it depending on the gases I want to dive or, or the gases I have available, for that matter, in some cases. Especially if you're going someplace uh, that the, the best gases may not be available. Maybe all you can get is this, okay, which may ch- change your dive plan, tweak it a little bit. Uh, or in some cases, it, uh, your buddy may, uh, because of what they're diving or what they're comfortable with, you may change your dive plan to match that. Now, when you first got into tech diving, what was the first piece of gear you upgraded? Oh, gee. <laughs> that was a, probably the, the scariest thing. When I first thought about doing technical diving, uh, was that I went up to SAS, and I talked to them about taking the class, and they had a piece of paper, and they said, okay, Here's all the equipment you need for the for the class, of which I was pretty much just recreational. I think I had uh, a couple of 63 cubic foot tanks, and that was about it. And anyway, uh, it was relatively expensive and expensive. <laughs> so at first I was thinking, well, gee, I can either take the class or I can buy the equipment. Maybe I'll buy the equipment and then take the class next year. Uh, but uh, things worked out where I was able to do both. But... Uh, the first piece of equipment, I think, in 
And yeah, so the first piece of equipment I bought uh, was primarily because of the location. Because we're, you know, Michigan, cold water, and if you're going to spend a lot of time in it, you don't want to be in a uh, wetsuit. So the first thing I bought was a dry suit. So, and I think that was probably the, one of the better purchases that I made was getting that dry suit. Um, probably the next thing after that was a my first, I got a steel tank. I got a 119 cubic foot steel tank. Uh, technical divers, you'll find, don't use, their primary gas supplies tend to be in steel tanks versus aluminum. We use aluminum tanks as stage bottles because of the flotation characteristics of them. But for your back gas, typically you, you're using steel. You can take weight off. You don't have to carry as much weight. Most steel tanks are negative even when they're empty. Uh, so you're not adding extra weight to be able to get down. Right. Now, so, and, and most steel tanks also are uh, um, high pressure, are they not, as compared to, like, say, well, the aluminum 80s that we dive? No, no. I mean, there's the just like uh, aluminum, aluminum, the multi, uh, different pressures. Uh, steel's got you got low pressure steels, uh, which were very popular for a long time. Uh, low pressure steels, which I think uh, are typically 2,400 psi. I don't own any of those, but uh, they're I believe they were about 20, uh, 2,400 psi, which is nice for areas where this way you get a good uh, full fill, and mm-hmm. uh, especially if you don't. Somebody's got a compressor that can't get up to 3,000 psi. Uh, a lot of steels are at 3,000 psi. The 119s I have are high pressure, and their pressure is 34, 3442 for their full uh, at full pressure. Now, when you take those in, do they normally fill them to that, or do you have to instruct them, say, hey, I want this at 34? That depends on the shop. Uh, different places, uh, you know. If you're going like here at uh, Wolf's, you can get a high-pressure fill or a low-pressure fill. Uh, if you go with a high-pressure fill, it's pretty much a 3,000-pound <laughs> fill. Make it a little over that, but uh, it costs a little extra. So I, I like the $2 air fill, uh, which is typically a little at 2,800 PSI uh-huh. at Wolf's, so, uh, which still gives me with a 119 when I'm diving that, like now during the wintertime. Uh, you know, it's a pretty good fill there. Makes sense, right? You still got a lot of a lot of air there. Oh yeah. Yeah, no. yeah and and especially in the winter time, like right now, I can do two or three dives, uh, especially with the the short dives that we do here on open circuit. Yeah. So you so you upgraded to a dry suit, and then you went with some steel tanks. So it was some other gear you had to upgrade. Oh, uh, well, I originally uh, at first I didn't want to get doubles. Uh, I didn't have the money to buy the, the doubles because the doubles rig was going to run, and that um, I believe it's about a thousand dollars between the two tanks and your manifold. So what I did was I bought just a single steel, a 119, and I got an H valve for it. Uh, if you're not familiar with an H valve, it's basically it's got two uh, connectors on it, so because you, you need to be able to have your primary and your uh, secondary uh, regulators on those. Uh, the other thing was getting, uh, I believe I also bought a aluminum 40 tank, which was used for my, um, as a stage bottle. And I also got a 20 cubic foot, no, 30 cubic foot tank that was also as a stage bottle. The 30 30 cubic foot tank I use pure oxygen in, and the 40 I use 
typically I used, uh, you know, I believe normally I, at that time I was diving 50% oxygen in that tank. So those were the, the I'd, so I'd have one tank on my back and I'd have clip, two of them clipped under on my arm, under my arms as stage bottles. For de- and those were the decompression part. Okay. Now, uh, did you ever make the jump to doubles or did you uh, end up going to the rebreather before you did that? No, no, I, I, I was in, uh, I dove the single for a while, uh, did it through my initial class, and uh, since I had a, a very good, uh, um, um, <laughs> let me say, I, I didn't use a whole lot of air, uh, the 119, I could do two 200-foot dives on that with no problem, still have lots of left over. So wow. uh, it wasn't an issue. Um, but I was limiting myself, I think, to about 15, 20 minutes per dive on those mm-hmm. dives at that time. Uh, I think the year after that, uh, when I was looking at, uh, I decided then to go get the helium class, uh, the mixed class, mixed gas class. That's when I bought, a, I bought myself another uh, 119 and put a manifold on it. And then I started di- diving the doubles after that. And since I liked the 119 so well, I actually bought a third one so I could have it uh, for a uh, as a singles unit uh, whenever I wanted to dive singles. So I had a double I said a double, uh, 119 doubles and uh, 119 as a single unit too, because I like oh, the I characteristic see. of that particular one. Right. So in fact, I still have all those things. That is, that's great. But uh, yeah, now there's other equipment you'll get involved with you know, lift bags. Uh, most classes will require you to have either one or two lift bags, typically 50-pound lifts. One is a straight lift bag. The other one will be a lift bag that's a uh, signaling device, you know, basically a long, skinny tube type. Uh, you'll have one or two reels and maybe a thumbs bolt to go with it. Uh, you'll go from using a, uh, right now, the recreational rig that you use, typically uh, the best type setup, isn't really cut out very well for doing technical diving. So what you would move to is a backplate and wing. Uh, backplate is basically a solid piece of metal, uh, although it can't. Some people use plastic in some of the warmer areas, but uh, typically it's either aluminum or stainless steel. Stainless steel is real popular up here because you can get some weight in that, which means you have to carry less lead on your waist. Uh, the plate is just a, basically a single piece of metal that's got some uh, funky bends in it, but uh, and some slits and holes cut in it. Uh, and then what you do is you weave, and you can do this. You're, you can buy it, or you can do this yourself. You use a about a 15 foot piece of solid nylon webbing that you weave through those holes and put various stainless steel uh, clips and D rings and things along that line on there, and basically make yourself your very own. Um, uh, harness system. They're very dependable uh, and uh, very easy to maintain and keep, and they'll pretty much they'll last you forever. Um, then to attach to that, you have a wing. The wing is basically the air bladder, and that's all it is. And it slaps on the back, and then over, and then on top of that goes your tanks, uh, either a single or uh, your doubles over top of that. So that gives you your your whole setup, and then your regulators are hooked up specific ways uh, to feed your um, to feed the wing, also to feed your um, your dry suit, uh, your backup regulator, your primary regulator, uh, the, and 
the manifold, if you've seen the manifold, they've got three valves on them, one for each tank plus one in the middle, an isolator valve. And that's one of the things you learn during those classes is in the event of free flows uh, or problems with regulators or tank seals is being able to reach back and shut down those valves in fairly uh, rapid order so you can maintain the air so you don't lose it. Solve your problem. That's what I said. You have an issue, you have to be able to learn how to solve the problem. And that's a big thing is doing what they call valve drills, is being able to reach back over your shoulder and grab those valves and turn them, uh, open and close those three valves as necessary to preserve your uh, breathing mixture. Now, did you find that it was pretty hard to be able to, uh, at first, be limber enough or, or uh, be dexterous enough to be able to manipulate those valves during the drills, or, or did it come pretty quick to you? Uh, it, it was difficult at first, and I think most people find it. Uh, there's some exercise. I actually did some uh, some uh, yoga things I found on the Internet that helped limber me up so I could reach back there more easily. Um, I also, by the time I got to that point, realized the dry suit I initially bought was not adequate for really for technical diving. It didn't give me uh, the reach that I needed. In other words, oh. the suit material uh, kept me from my hands from going back <laughs> far enough mm-hmm. to actually turn them out, which was a problem. So I got rid of that suit and got a, uh, traded it in and got a new suit, uh, a much better, a much better suit where I could reach that the valves. So, uh, yeah, yeah, valve drills are uh, the bane of a lot of people. <laughs> it can be a yeah. problem for some people. Well, better than the alternative and not being able to turn it off. Right. Yes. Right, yeah, you could see. But I know I would have problems because uh, I'm not as uh, limber as I used to be. I guess if uh, if it came to that, I'd have to do some stretching and some exercises to help that along, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's ways of doing it uh, to help yourself get to them. You can do things like hike the tanks higher on your back so that you can reach up. There, there's other because, uh, I mean, there, there, are tri- there are tricks that you can do to, to get those things closed. And uh, they even make, I think it's OMS makes some valve extenders that attach to your valve and come down to your side so you can twist a little bit more easily. Uh, some people invert the tank so that the val- valves are at the bottom. Uh, you don't see that too often because it's kind of hard to set your tanks down then. Um, I think yeah, I've seen be. that divers over in Europe. I've never seen anybody over here, but I've heard of some people over in Europe do that. But uh, you'd have to be very careful with your manifold then. Yeah, you would, uh, especially doing an, uh, a boat uh, dive or something. I could see those manifolds getting smashed on a gunnel or, or something uh, in entry yeah. and, and having a big problem. It could be a problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like so. I said, I've, I've never actually seen it myself, but I've heard of people that have done it. So. What's your what's your favorite wreck that you've been on? You said that that was kind of your trigger into getting you into some of the deeper dives. Um, on all the yeah. things that you've done, what's your, what's your most memorable deep dive? Um, probably my favorite wreck is the one I was talking about earlier. Was the, is the Florida, which is up in uh, Presque Isle, and kind of is in Lake Huron on the Lake Mich- on the Michigan side, Presque Isle. Uh, which is about 10 miles south of Rogers City. Um, it's uh, it's a beautiful wreck. It was hit, I believe, in the side during a, a collision with another ship and sank it. And it's just a great big, beautiful wreck. Uh, uh, you got lo- great visibility up there. Uh, visibility 
every time I've been up there, the worst visibility I've seen was about 60 foot. I've seen it as good as 80. Um, it's just it's just a, a very beautiful wreck up there. Uh, close second for me would be the Windy 8, which is also in that same area. There's quite a few very nice wrecks right in that area. Uh, it's a, if you're a technical diver, it's a beautiful, because all the wrecks are sitting in uh, basically about a 170, 180 to 200-ish uh, feet of water. So it's a, it's a great for diving, uh, for you know, technical divers, um, even beginner or experienced technical divers, and the wrecks are in beautiful shape. They're deep enough down that surface storms don't bother them, and uh, they're because of the way the the shoreline is around there, the water stays clear uh, most of the year round. Ah, uh, now what uh, what type of uh, temperature are you looking at down there? I mean, you're talking 165 uh, and deeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, temperature typically is right around 41, 40, 41 degrees on just about all those deeper wrecks that I've seen. Uh, at least I I don't know how whether or not it varies very much during the you know. Typically, I'm going there in late summer time frames so when I've tended to go to those things, and it's always been sitting right around that time, that temperature. Right, and that's that's kind of what helps keep them uh, as nicely preserved as they are, doesn't it? The, the cold, yes. uh, oh, clear yeah. water? They're cold cold water, and also it's very uh, low oxygen content, so there's not a lot of... Uh, you look at a lot of these wrecks, look very much like they did when they sank. Um, you can see very easily, in most cases, the damages that were was done. I mean, the only thing that's not there, the sails aren't there, the rope isn't going to be there. Uh, those all decay away. Um, none of those have bodies on them. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, uh, there's only one that I know of where it's got a bone that you can see, but uh, that's, that's the only one I'm aware of. Uh, and that's the, the, nor- the typo. Uh, which was a uh, wooden sailing ship that had a load of coal. It sank stern first, and when it hit, somebody got caught in the coal pile. And uh, they've got a there's a boot, a leather boot there. And if you look closely, you can see the uh, femur coming up into the boat, into the boot. <laughs> wow. So they call him Typo Tony. So. <laughs> <laughs> So now when you're down that deep, um, you know, one of the things that's uh, a big subject in the Great Lakes is uh, the invasive species. And, of course, we've got, uh, um, you know, our favorites. Uh, have you seen anything down there that's starting to degrade those wrecks yet? Oh, yeah. Um, you've got the zebra mussels are the ones, they're basically the ones that are in the shallower areas. But once you get down deeper, there's another type of mussel, and it's called a quagga. It's a slower-growing mussel. Uh, but it's still uh, one of those that it's slowly covering up. The deeper wrecks you'll find they're not as covered up as the shallower wrecks, but they're they're definitely getting there. Uh, they've been uh, I've definitely seen over the last few years more zebra mussels on these things, but you can still find a lot of open wood and stuff like that. Right. Okay. And if you go up to I believe Lake and in Lake Superior, uh, there's almost no mussels up there at this time. So those wrecks are still very good, um, very visible, very easy to figure out what they are. Wow. 
that it, that would be something to be able to see that uh, some of those wrecks uh, firsthand rather than watching videos or pictures or or listening to to, uh, to some of you guys who have really experienced it explain it. It's got to be yeah. something uh, to dive on yeah. one the first time and see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoy. I've been up. Uh, I dove those the Prescott wrecks. Uh, I've done two trips up there. I did the first time was all open circuit. Next time was. Uh, some uh, people I met, uh, we had uh, five, six uh, rebreather divers, and we uh, chartered a boat for a week two years ago and did uh, did all those wrecks there, and going on them as a rebreather diver was just uh, heavenly. And uh, <laughs> this this summer, uh, got we've got 12 rebreather divers who will all be uh, we're chartering two boats uh, this summer and spending a week diving all those wrecks up there. Wow, which will be what a lot an of experience. Fun. Now, what was yeah. your, what got you into the rebreather part of it? Oh, uh, I <laughs> well, I moved into the rebreather. Uh, one, I was just really interested in. I'd always been interested in. Uh, I didn't know a lot about them, but uh, once I, um, I don't know, I don't remember what actually triggered me to start looking into them again. But I spent probably a good year looking at the different things. And I'd made the decision I wanted to move into rebreathers. I just didn't know which one. But there's probably a couple dozen different types of rebreathers out there. Uh, probably most of that year, year and a half that I spent researching was trying to determine which one I wanted, and which was very difficult until I finally stopped and said, well, what kind of diving do I want to do? Once I figured out what kind of diving I wanted to do and was comfortable with, then it was a lot easier to figure out which rebreather to buy. <laughs> but... Um, the rebreathers have some definite advantages over open circuit, uh, especially if you're doing if you want to do a lot of technical diving. Uh, you can uh, you don't buy a rebreather to save money, but you can definitely save money on mixed gas with a rebreather. Um, your typical, I uh, believe, my doubles uh, for a helium fill uh, it was running me about ninety to a hundred dollars or so. Uh, in fact, a, a weekend. Uh, mixed gas diving on open circuit. I think uh, the gas price for just a weekend diving four wrecks was about 300 bucks, not counting charter and hotel and everything else. Wow. So it, it was kind of pricey, just you know, just to breathe, 300 bucks. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, uh, kind of important, though. Yeah, it, it is yeah, priceless kind of when you put it that way, but, but uh, it sure seems like a lot for recreation. Right, right. Because, uh, like I said, you, open circuit, you know how it is. You breathe it in, and you blow it right back out. Well, all those bubbles going up, yeah, there's ching, 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 ching. <laughs> all just yeah. going away. Uh, rebreathers is, yeah, the rebreather is very nice in that uh, as you breathe it in, it just sits there and circulates in and out, in and out, and you don't waste very much at all. Uh, so as an example, my old doubles now, I get them filled a couple times a year with mixed gas, and uh, so, and I can I dive a mixed gas pretty much any time I'm going more than about 60 feet deep. So it's very convenient, and uh, it's very nice to have that option now. Where I'd have spent quite a bit of money if I tried to do that with circuit oil. So, so I mean, I've I've looked at the price of some of the rebreathers, and I I, I wouldn't call them cheap, but you think over time no. that the, it's a, eventually a savings. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're doing a lot of uh, rebreather diving and you're doing a lot of especially deep diving type stuff, uh, I've seen some people as, 
have actually come up and figured out that uh, it took them about three, four years uh, where they would have broke even if they just stayed on open circuit, uh, just from the gases alone. But there's other expenses associated with rebreathers, and uh, there's other uh, things about them that make them, that they're uh, a bit more finicky than open circuit, and it does take a little bit more of a different mindset. You just can't come home, drop the gear on the floor, and let it dry out. You've actually got to do you've got to do a little maintenance. Typically, the newer rebreathers are much easier to maintain and take care of. Uh, my pre-dive Typically, is probably about 15 minutes uh, getting you know getting it ready at home, and then um, after after what after I'm done diving, eh, maybe about five to ten minutes. So there's a little bit of maintenance you have to do, just things you do, take it apart, rinse out some of the stuff. But uh, since you are recirculating air, you want to make sure that that air is uh, good and clean, and all all the things that you're breathing are uh, don't have mung growing in them. So you want to rinse them up, right. things out good. No. Yeah, everybody's got the maintenance to do. It just sounds like yours is just a little bit more specific. Uh, you know, everybody should be taking oh, yeah. care of their gear, but but uh, yeah. you definitely want to do that because you're uh, breathing through the same passages all the time, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, open circuit's a lot more forgiving, you know. Right. Like after our last dive last week, and it, pretty much I got home, I took everything out put it up in the rack and let it drip, and the uh, tank with the regulator still attached is sitting in my gar- garage just off of the side, and I haven't touched it since I set it down on the floor. No need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, by the way, I guess you guys found a bottle uh, last week, huh? Yes, we did. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah Don, Don found it. <laughs> he, if it's down there, he's going to find it. He picture of me holding it, though. <laughs> well, yeah, that's okay. That's all uh, right. Yeah, he, for some reason, didn't want to be in front of the camera. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he set us up out there. Yeah, and if anybody wants to take a look at the picture, it's actually sitting up on the uh, Scuba Obsessed and, website. Uh, did, did you see that one, Jim? What's that? Did you see the picture in the Scuba Obsessed website? I did. Okay. I did. Yep. And uh, that is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, uh, what I realized, I think that uh, Bob's dry suit looks much more cool than my wetsuit, though. Hang on, I've <laughs> got to look at that. I, I wasn't looking to critique anything, but we'll, well, we'll you go know, there. The, I don't think you know my wetsuit looks too bad, but I mean, you know, that I really like the look of that dry suit. So you know, you yeah. Know, of course, you know, uh, once fashion. you go dry, <laughs> uh, once you go dry, you 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 won't want to go back. Well, out. well that, that, that's why we're doing the wetsuit diving this year. And we're getting as much in because I know that next year, you know, like you said, once once you go dry, I don't see me me going back. So we'll have one good solid year where we can reminisce about ice diving in a wetsuit. But I'm looking forward to the days mm-hmm. I don't have to do that. Uh, yep. You yeah. You know, now yeah, that I you mention it, I'm I'm looking here and and uh, yeah, uh, much cooler. Um, yeah, it, it kind of has I, that. I Mad Max or, you know, Road Warrior or some kind of look, you know, got the pockets all, you know, just. Right. As yeah. opposed to the superhero wannabe look. That, yeah. Uh, we're sporting yeah, you know, in the wetsuits. Yeah, we put a little red S <laughs> or something in the front and we're, we're all set. But we determined a couple of weeks ago that we were superheroes anyway, so. That's right. Ah. That's right. Yeah. So. Well, when you guys are ready to buy your 
uh, your advice is to uh, just uh, talk to some of the guys who are, you know, if you're looking, especially if you're looking at technical diving, you know, if you're just going to do recreational diving, just about any wet dry suit will, will fit the bill. Uh, and there are some relatively inexpensive dry suits out there. But if you're looking at getting the technical, it might not be a bad idea to spring for a little bit more and talk to the guys who are technical divers to find out what it is that you need to look for in a dry suit because there's, uh, you don't know what you don't know. So you need to ask the question. Uh, like I said, when I bought my first one, I didn't know what the right questions were, so I, bought, I ended up spent buying one that didn't fit my needs a year later. But, uh, uh, you know, you can save yourself some time and uh, heartache <laughs> by uh, well, yeah. talking to the folks who are doing it. Yeah, my approach with gear has been as I'm trying, I, I know I'm going to have multiple setups, multiple rigs, and I don't. I want to avoid getting something that I caught something a little bit nicer that would have been dual purpose, or you know having something that overlaps with another piece of gear too much. So, you know, I, so you know maybe it's fine that I end up with two dry suits, but I wouldn't want them to be two types of almost the same dry suit. I'd want one that maybe fit a particular purpose, and then maybe another dry suit that was was able to do something completely different. Yeah, well, pretty much dry suits are, uh, you really you should only need one. <laughs> the only time you'd have another one was if you went and bought enough, you had an old one, you bought another one, you used your old one as your backup you know, in case your your new one's leaking. But uh, you know, a dry suit's job is just to do that. It's just to keep you dry. That's all. As long as it's doing that, it's doing its job. <laughs> now, what will you... Say you were going to go down on the Florida, and you're looking at what'd you say, like 40 degrees? Um, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, 40-ish. What would you What would you wear under there? I understand you would layer it just like we would to go out and shovel the driveway, right, underneath your wetsuit. But mm -hmm. what would you put under yeah. there? Oh yeah, that that's always uh, well. It's hard to give a, a a definite. Hey, this is what you should have because everybody's different. Everybody's cold tolerance is different. Also. Yeah. And as you age, your cold tolerance has changed, too. Um, I used to be very cold tolerant. I used to dive the, all through the winter with wetsuit, too. But uh, anyway, uh, I found, after a lot of trial and error, because I've had gone through quite a few different types of undergarments, is that the best thing i found is the layered approach. And it's typically, normally I use two layers, unless it's going to be extremely cold, or extremely long cold dive, uh, in which case I go with three layers. I try not to go three layers too often just because the extra restriction associated with it. But uh, what I want first off on my body is right close next to my skin is a layer of polypropylene, uh, basically some, a material that will soak, will uh, suck the moisture off of you. Because when you're in a dry suit, essentially the humidity inside is 100%, and you're always sweating. You know, you sweat continuously. Even in cold water like this, you are sweating. Right. And you need to get that water, that sweat, away from your skin as soon as possible. The faster you can get away from your skin, uh, the more comfortable you're going to be. So uh, something like a what I use is specifically the Under, Under Armour cold gear. Uh, mm -hmm. You can see it a lot of different places. And I use that as my initial layer. It's a very form-fitting type of... Um, um, what am I going to say, um, shirt and bottoms to it. I also wear uh, a thin pair of socks, which are uh, polypropylene also to suck it away from your feet. 
Then over top of that is my primary layer. Now, some people, there's, there's lots of different things out there. And I can't speak for anything other than what I've done before. But uh, I've used Vinsulate before, and it was pretty decent. Um, I used the, actually, it was a DUI um, garment, uh, 400 gram Vinsulate. Personally, I didn't particularly care for it because I didn't like, because I thought it would restrict my mobility. Uh, mm-hmm. But after a lot of experimentation, I found something I like, and uh, which worked well for me, which is called Fourth Element um, Arctic Gear. And it's a two-piece top and bottom that's uh, a polar fleece, multiple-layer type stuff. It also wicks the moisture further away from your body. And I found that to be the best for my, for my personal use. Uh, I know people who use weasels. Uh, uh, those are made over in Europe, uh, I believe England, uh, Great Britain. Uh, which people just love those. It's like uh, getting into a giant sleeping bag. Uh, there's some, you know, it's, uh, some people just love them. I, I can't speak about them because I never uh, dove them. So, but sure. A lot that, of people that, was, that was weasels? Yeah, weasels. And there's you a lot of other things out there. Like, like, like the animal weasel. <laughs> weasel. Actually, there. it's W-E-E-Z-L-E. They're they're probably man-made weasels. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking that there's like a weasel farm, and then you know they're skinning yeah. the weasels and then sewing them into. Pelts. I guess I never thought of that. I, I never thought of that version of the word, but uh, yeah, um, the fourth element. I like those personally. I like them quite a bit, and they're very comfortable. And then on my feet, I'll put on a pair of uh, real thick uh, wool socks on top of that, and that's typically what I wear now. Keep in mind, also, I dive a rebreather normally, and that's more than enough to keep me. I actually wear less because I wear uh, because of diving a rebreather uh, than I did when I was diving a um, uh, open circuit. I would actually probably have that third layer on a lot more often, <laughs> which uh, goes between uh, the under layer and that uh, the top layer, which. Um, the layer I had typically was, was like almost a thin uh, one-piece suit, and it's uh, uh, kind of a, almost like a sweatshirt material type stuff. It's a little higher tech than that, but uh, with the three layers, that was pretty comfortable. With no, the rebreather, the... I didn't need as much because with the rebreather, uh, you're breathe when you're breathing the air that you're recirculating, it's warm. <laughs> it's warm and very moist. So unlike open circuit where every breath you bring in, one, it's cold air, and it's cold not only because it's sitting in the tank surrounded by cold water, but also as it expands, it drops in temperature even more. I think I've read somewhere it gets down to at one point, right after it expands through the first stage, it's like uh, minus 50 degrees. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but I remember reading about it once, but it, I, you know how cold that air is. And yeah. every time you inhale it, you're inhaling into your lungs, you're warming it up, and then you're breathing out that nice warm air, yeah, and bringing in more. So the air to get rid of it, yeah. Right, right. So you're expending a lot of energy heating that air uh, over the course of a dive. Whereas the rebreather, the air is already warm, and actually, uh, because of the, there's a chemical, the chemical reaction that is occurring that uh, sucks the carbon dioxide out, it actually produces heat and water. So you're actually breathing in this real nice, warm, moist air. So you're, it's, a, it's a, another source of lo- heat loss that you don't have 
with a rebreather, which is, an, like I said, is another advantage if you're on a rebreather for long decompression diving in cold water. Now, with, yeah, that, re- that, with that rebreather, what's been the longest dive you've been able to do from the time you, you went under to when you got back out? What was the total duration? Uh, I think about the longest I've ever done was close to three hours. Usually by that time, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hungry when I go down, but... <laughs> right. I'd be needing a Snicker bar yeah. well before or, or, that, or, I think. Yeah. yeah, or there's other bodily functions that need to be taking place at that well, time. Yeah, I, that's, that's true. <laughs> and the dry suit, you know, unless you got the uh, the valve there, it's a, it's a little bit different <laughs> yeah, situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the, the, the P valve. That was a new acquisition uh, last year, so. <laughs> An upgrade. <laughs> that is yeah, that was my last upgrade. <laughs> now, can they retrofit that, or do you have to, I'm assuming? No, you can, it's very easy. I put it in myself. You just, uh, you just, uh, very easy to install those things. Uh, you don't really need them until you start getting into the longer dives. I was looking at, uh, this year, uh, or last year doing, getting into dives that were uh, two hours length or more. So I uh, wanted the P-valve in there at that time. So there were a few times that I really wish I had one. <laughs> What's the most unusual thing you've seen underwater? Uh, gee, most unusual thing. Uh, we'll put them on the spot. Well, I- yeah, I was, I was just trying to think. Probably the most unusual was uh, a, a wreck, uh, just the wreck in general that I saw. And I, uh, sorry, I don't remember the exact, it's either called the Detroit or the city of Detroit. And it's right at the tip of the thumb area. And I believe it's sitting in about 210 feet of water. And it sank in 1854. So this is uh, also the oldest wreck I've ever been on. But it's a twin side uh, paddle, twin paddle wheel on either on either side of the the ship, sitting upright on the bottom. Both paddle wheels totally intact, with the steam engine in between. And that was just probably one of the most amazing things I'd seen. Because one, I never realized how big those paddle wheels were. Those things are just gigantic, and these paddle wheels were totally intact. Um, and the steam engine was really interesting looking because it was a very old. Uh, I think a, the, the name of it's called a traveling beam steam engine. I looked oh, it up wow. at one time. Yeah, yeah, those, so it, those it was are pretty neat. It was pretty neat looking, but that and unusual because that's the only steam uh, steam engine that I've seen with a paddle wheels on the dives that I've done. So everything else, I've seen quite a few steam engines, but they've all been uh, driving propellers. Very cool stuff. Yeah. See, Jim, there's, there's, we just got tons more diving to do. That's <laughs> yeah. all it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think that takes scuba obsessed to a new level too. Yeah. 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 Uh, what I was doing, yeah, when I was doing the open circuit stuff, uh, and after I joined the dive clubs, I was averaging anywhere. I was doing anywhere from 120 to 150 dives per year. And most of those were up here in the cold water. Now, uh, since then I've, because uh, I was going, you know, two or three times a week sometimes. But uh, since then, I've looked more for quality versus quantity, <laughs> especially when after a few years you get tired of diving the, the local lakes because typically you'll see a rowboat or two and 
uh, things along that line. There's not quite as much uh, to see uh, in the local lakes, and so that's when you get got into diving uh, out on the lake, got my own boat so I could actually dive out in Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, uh, on the wrecks that I wanted to go to, which opened up a whole new avenue, too. Yeah, that is a lot of lot of fun, and that's where we're at right now. The just just getting in and getting wet is an adventure for us. Uh, so it'll be just a yeah. couple of years, and and we'll be probably following in the same footsteps of, you know, wanting to get in, seeing more and different things. A um, couple of years. To, I, I'm, I'm talking about uh, next week. I'm you know. <laughs> if, if I have my way, I'm just, we'll 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 dive four or five nights a week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that that'd be nice, but but yeah, I, I think the south. Uh, we'll is... be taking the boat out, and uh, we'll we'll take you out to some of the local wrecks, and you're more than welcome to guys are co- welcome to come with us until we start moving up into the higher level stuff. Uh, we always start the year out early with uh, some of the easier stuff like the Havana, the Verano, which are 50 foot wrecks, and then we'll move into the Rockaway, which is a 60 footer, and then. Uh, probably the next thing around there would be uh, the Ironsides is at 120. The, the Ann Arbor 5 is out of South Haven, which is uh, a real nice dive, uh, which actually has a quite a bearing, although it's sitting in about 156, 160 feet of water. It, you can get on the ship right at about the 100-foot level, and uh, because of the way it's uh, sitting on the bottom, it's actually kind of it's piercing the bottom and it's sticking out of the bottom at about a 30 degree angle. So you can uh, see quite a bit of the ship just from the, the back, the high point of it. So uh, if you're comfortable Those diving at least 200 foot, that's a good right. one to go to. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we'll, I, I see us this year is just, you know, there's the shallower stuff, you know, getting some more time under our belts and, you know, and obviously yeah, yeah. there'll be some additional training going along in there as well. Yeah, yeah it, and, and there's some good places to uh, get you into going to some more lakes around here. There's a lot of very good lakes. Uh, lake 16 uh, is probably one of our favorite inland lakes around here uh, just because it's very popular for uh, technical uh, diver training. Uh, a lot of uh, people, uh, instructors take people there for their tech diving training because it's deep, cold, and uh, dark. So if you can be comfortable diving in Lake 16, You'll, you'll be di- you'll be comfortable diving just about anywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's a good uh, segue. Uh, we can uh, talk about this last weekend. Uh, Bob, mm-hmm. Don, and I got to do a little bit. It wasn't quite an ice dive because we were in the river and it was open, but you know, we, we, were, we were able to get one dive in that Jim missed, rubbing it, in, rubbing it in now. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was it tell, was good. Tell me about. Well, we, we had was, we, we had the dueling shanties again, which was nice. Uh, you know, the you can't have too much warm place to uh, to dress. Uh, same spot there by the water tower in the St. Joe River. Uh, you know, we did a beach entry. It didn't seem to be as mucky this time, uh, or maybe I'm just getting used to it. It seemed like last last time I was fighting the muck awful heavy, but we got in there. But you know, we did the two ice dives and you know, uh, a couple. You know, the two weeks before and another four weeks before. And you know, right. once once you got through the hole in the ice and you got down, that was about 36. But wow, I think that was about the coldest I have been diving was this last weekend. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that that, okay. that 
that 33 degree water and the current and, and we had some i thought it was unusual current because when we had dove there before i don't remember the current being quite that way so mm-hmm. yeah where you guys were at i kind of once you get out into the channel um and right in front of uh where they offload for what is it, a cement cement plant there, there or something right there yep that's it's kind of yep. a neat wall uh, along that side, looking down at some of the nets that are caught up in the the pillars and and things like that, I kind of like poking around in there. Do you see anything neat hanging out in there? I yep. didn't see anything interesting. No. Didn't see a fish this time. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't were... see any fish either. I saw a lot of leaves floating in the current, but uh, you know. And then we had Don. Don uh, found that bottle. We had planted that bottle there before the. New Year's Eve dive, and I guess the, Jim and I didn't make it to New Year's Eve dive, but nobody else was able to find it that dive, and we've been back uh, this time, and Don was in a little hole in the in the side, and he found a, a, a full, well, I want a full bottle. It was a it was an empty bottle filled with uh, muck, and then he said just a few feet next to it was that uh, that. Uh, wine that wine bottle that we had stashed there that was full so was wasn't too far away from where it was planted but it had moved a little bit mm-hmm. well i hope it was still cold and i'm sure it was <laughs> but no, it, 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 as, as cold as it was i i didn't have problem but you know the, me with my uh three mil hood gloves and boots uh you know they're nuts <laughs> well, we, we we know that, but uh, I, I have to admit I did uh, grab a pair of six and a half mil uh, boots this week, and uh, I, I think I think tomorrow uh, when I get some gear, I'm going to get some gloves. I saw you know one of those lobster, I call them the lobster claw gloves, the the three fingers. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to pick up one of those too. Uh, I think yeah, that's a good, good idea. idea. Yeah. I, so, and then probably my next upgrade for this would be uh, probably another hood. It won't happen this time, but maybe in a couple of weeks I'll pick that up. And then I think as far as cold weather wetsuits, that's as far as I'm going to go. I noticed that uh, one of the dive shops here had eight and nine millimeter wetsuits. And I was asking them, besides Don, Jim, and I, who is crazy enough to be diving in a wetsuit this time of year? And he said, nobody. <laughs> and they had a, they had at least a dozen of them. So... You know, maybe if we keep an eye on them, you know, six months to a year from now, we'll we'll be able to pick them up as a steal. Right. I, I'm uh, hoping you'll be in dry suits then. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually hoping. hoping. Yeah, I'm hoping that my my goal is, uh, you know, get the wetsuit all completely kitted out, get the regs and gear, then I think the dry suit, <laughs> and I'll start moving my way. You know, like you know, pick up a back plate and a and a wing slowly. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, a little bit every so many weeks, so it doesn't show up so much in the bank account when I'm. When I'm doing it, you know, kind of <laughs> smuggle it under the radar. <laughs> yeah, Cook the books a little I bit. I talked to Don about, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I talked to Don You're about in the Mud Club meeting is having a, a demonstration of how to put together a, a plate and wing. Uh, how to build your own. Yeah, I've gone on to the, that, uh, like, one of the brands I've seen out there is the Dive Right, and they've got some nice videos. And I have to yeah. admit, I have to watch the videos four or five times for it to sink in. Yeah, because because you're watching the video two dimensional on the screen, you know I want to you know have the tank have the back plate you know however you know start the webbing. But mm-hmm. what was interesting is I noticed some things on that which uh, I had the strap on my 
on my BC wrong. And it was just how I got the BC. You know, nobody had showed me that when I watched them rig up a, a back plate and a tank. I'm like, oh, well, that's how it's supposed to be. So you know, it, was, <laughs> it seems like I, I learned something new each time. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 I'm still learning, learning yeah. things new as I watch how different people do things. And um, sometimes I adapt their ideas and or try them out and see whether or not they work for me. Yeah. That's a great approach. Uh, you know, I, I just noticed that every time I, I get out in the water, it seems like it'd be a little bit easier, you know, getting suit up, get the gear, get everything together. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, right. and that, and that's part of the draw to it. I, I like a, a sport or an activity where you can actually feel like you, you get better each time, but then there's still plenty more that you know that you can learn and, and just get into it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, we, we had that. And then of course we had that photo op. I think next time we're going to have to turn it around and get Don in the picture. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that that was good to get in, and then this week Jim's joining us. So so far it looks like we have Jim, Bob, Don, and myself will be doing Lake 16. Uh, yeah, Kirk that, Wetzke will be there. Who who's oh, going to be there? Kurt. Kurt. Kurt oh Wetzke. great, great. So he, yeah. he that'll be great to to see him. I don't, I don't have we have we dove with Kurt yet, Jim? Uh uh-uh. uh Yeah, I don't no, think so. It, I don't, Schedules just always, uh, always never meshed quite right. So, um, I know we've talked a couple times about it, and it, it ought to be a good time. Yeah. Now, now, Bob, uh, you you want to tell us what we can expect on that dive? Um, uh, Lake 16. Uh, the idea, the concept here on Lake 16 is that it's a relatively small lake, and we'll uh, from the public access. We'll walk out. Uh, actually, I have to walk out quite a ways. Probably oh, about probably at least 125, 150 out, because the way it. Uh, but I understand it's very solid height right now. But we'll go out. Uh, the way this lake goes is at the boat dock. It goes down. There's like a little bowl depression area there that's probably 30, 40 feet across. And which doesn't get more than about, I think, 12, 15 feet deep. And then it comes up to about two feet deep as it goes across essentially a sandbar. And uh, it stays that way for a 50 feet or so. Uh, and then it all of a sudden drops off at probably at about a 45-degree angle down to around 70 feet. Uh, the There is a training platform that is sitting in about... 20 feet of water, but it's anchored in 40, uh, 40 to 42 feet of water. So the idea is we will cut our, our opening as close to over top of that uh, platform as we can. Uh, we may have to make a couple small practice cuts so we figure out exactly where the platform is, but I imagine the visibility should be fairly decent. We should be able to find it quickly, I believe. But the we want to put it uh, the cut right over top of the platform. We'll run a line. We'll anchor a line uh, in the ice and run that down to the platform, tie it off at the platform so everybody has a guideline to get down to the platform. And then what we're going to do in this case, instead of a horizontal ice dive, we're going to do a vertical ice dive. Typically, most of our ice dives have been in real shallow water where we're going out horizontally around the hole. This time, what we're going to do is we're going to go basically more or less straight up and down. You've got a platform to go to, which will be right there at 20 feet, and then you can follow the chains down, down to the bottom. Now, right there at the bottom, there are two boats that have been sunk uh, that are within about 10 feet of each other. Uh, 
there's a little Christmas tree forest just off to the side, which I don't recommend anybody go to unless, uh, especially the newer folks. Uh, but, uh, and you'll see lines that go off from these boats going off into the distance uh, in much deeper water. Uh, it gets about 82 foot deep in, in this lake, uh, and it gets very, very, and it stays cold all year round. But uh, the idea is we'll, we'll stay just in that general area, so nobody should be going down any deeper than that or getting away from the hole. So if anybody has an issue with their equipment, is that they should be able to essentially uh, go straight up uh, and get out of the, uh, and the hole will be right there. Uh, for the, some of the newer people uh, and anybody who wants it, what we'll do is we'll still have the ropes of the ice diving. They'll be attached. You can have them attached to you so that you can, and we'll anchor those up on the surface. That way you can follow the rope back and always know where to go get back out. That makes sense. So I, I think it'll be an interesting, it'll make for an interesting dive, and we'll be going down in teams uh, on this, uh, you know, we may all actually be in, because we're not going to have any surface people watching the ropes on the surface in this case. Right. Yeah. This should be a good time. I think so. The, yeah. the, one, the one thing that'll be interesting, especially since we're diving wetsuits, you know, the ice dives we've done so far, you know, 18 feet, you know, as those wetsuits mm -hmm. compress as we get down, I, I, th I think our, our end time could be a little shorter this time. Yeah. But you may also find that the, the water typically is also a little warmer under the ice. The ice does a good job of insulating it. Oh, that's, that's true. It's, uh, unlike the river. Yeah, unlike the river, which was 33 degrees, because that's all ice melt. Well, that was 33 yeah, degrees, and and that that current was flowing over me. I mean, it's like I I was actually kind of turning which shoulder was into the current, and the other side would actually warm up. So, yeah, it, it could be warmer. So that that'll that'll be interesting. It'll be nice. It's uh, and we've been wanting to get up to Lake 16. We've we've heard about it, uh, you know, since we joined the club. Yeah, it'll be nice to to get that in. Yeah. I, I could see us coming back and visiting that a few times this year. Yeah. yeah, so um, uh, don't don't forget to bring your lights. Probably won't need them, but it's, it's better to have them and not need them than <laughs> wish I, you had them. Yeah, I, I I learned that. I mean, there's that's you know there's certain things in the diving that I've just I just end up taking all the time. I mean, I guess unless it was tropics and sunny, but uh, it seems like I we've well, I mean, even when it is, there's always a crevice or a crack you want to look into. Uh, yeah. So, right I, I, now. We don't have the high power laser beams that you're uh, you're accustomed to. So <laughs> our our lights are mostly just for location and uh, so you know up close seeing. But should uh, we expect Bob to have the Borg helmet, you know, and like the lasers attached to the side? Yeah, I think he. Uh, I will. I will have my lights. <laughs> yeah. I don't go anywhere without my HIDs. Yeah, uh, we actually have a question from the chat room uh, uh, coming from Don. And uh, oh. he said that, yeah, he said to make sure that we ask you uh, when we're talking about things that are interesting. He, he says watching the formation of the frazzle ice from underneath it. Uh, if you could describe that. Oh, okay. Uh, what that was? This was a dive probably about oh gee three four years ago that uh, Don was on this dive. Also, in fact, it was at the water tower, just like uh, the one we did last week, and. <clears throat> It was very cold. It was the water temperature was sitting, uh, according to my thermometer, right at 32. Uh, and actually, I think in the river it was showing as 31. But I was at one point where I was looking at some of these um, old piers, uh, wooden piers, and they had these ice crystals 
growing out of the, basically very long, straight needles growing straight out of the wood. It was really interesting looking, very fragile looking, but you could actually see these things growing. And as I was watching this thing, and I'm in a, probably about 15 feet of water, I believe it was, um, all of a sudden I realized I couldn't see him as well as I could just even a few minutes before. And when I kind of had to shift my vision and realize that these ice crystals were now growing in the water itself. And you could actually watch these things kind of start at a pinpoint, and then they just kind of grow into these long needles. And uh, there wasn't hardly any current right at that particular spot. So it was just fascinating. Of course, uh, then all of a sudden I started thinking about it, and uh, all I could think of was the old Bugs Bunny Rogue Under cartoons where they <laughs> fall into the... Uh, the hole in the ice, and they have to pull them out with the tongs, and they're fully. <laughs> that's, the, that's the immediate thought I had. <laughs> that's why I totally logical. That area. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's beautiful to a point, and then you start to go, hmm. <laughs> you, you, Is this smart? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so, you know. That you know, depending if we were in a different climate, you know, they could pull us out ten thousand years later as uh, examples yeah. of uh, of our time. <laughs> right. Is an example yeah. of, of what we are today. So that that was a case you're in the right right spot, at the right time to see that. That that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I have I haven't seen that since uh, uh, any place. I of course last weekend was the first time I've been in that cold of water for for a little while. Uh, so um, the possibility of seeing that there, what that, I didn't see any of that on any of the piers this last time. I think well, it was, we were just maybe a degree too too warm yet. Yeah, well, I was actually, uh, the night before, I scouted out that bay, and there was a skim mm-hmm. of ice, and that was probably about six at night, across that whole bay there, and, and I was surprised to come in the next day, and it was clear. So it must have been the current had warmed it up or moved some warm water through there because uh, the air temperature hadn't gotten any warmer. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of neat things to see. I, I even saw... Um, some uh, jellyfish in a quarry uh, down by Niles. Uh, I didn't realize there were uh, jellyfish in uh, fresh water up here, but the little bitty tiny things that are no more than maybe a quarter to the biggest one is maybe a half inch around, and they were in uh, a small rock quarry down uh, north of Niles. I think it was on 52. Uh, I'm not sure. We haven't dove it for a few years because they started building all around it, so it's hard to get back into it but um yeah it was a very warm summer day and we were diving and we were along the bottom for some reason i went up to the top and all of a sudden realized there's all these little bitty jellyfish all over the place and they were really interesting looking yeah that, that, um, that's something i always enjoy seeing is any of that sea life we or yeah, like, and, lake, lake yeah, life and actually i looked it up on the internet and they told me what they were and i guess they are something that live up in this area it is fascinating stuff, and that's one of the favorite things that I like to see too. Is like, it made my day to see a big, big uh, crawdad uh, last week, uh, kind of defending a tent <laughs> camp. I, I, I didn't but, see that crawdad. Sounds well, like a you, fish story. Yeah, you 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 weren't looking either. I don't think, but well, I was uh, stirring up a little bit of muck, so. Yes, <laughs> but but that kind of stuff, you know, seeing some some natural uh, life there is is pretty neat the only time i had really seen them before i got into diving was with either when i was splashing around in a pond or putting them on the end of a hook i never i never really <laughs> saw that sort of stuff in their natural habitat and it's really neat 
get a kick out of it. Yeah. yeah it's too bad we didn't see any catfish. As cold as it is right now, catfish get pretty lethargic, and you can come right up to them, and uh, they don't swim away. So uh, it's a lot of fun to mess with the catfish, but I was looking for them. Couldn't find any, though. Yeah, well, somebody was saying down there by that, that train uh, bridge that there's usually a couple catfish down there that like to hang around. Now, some, some of the big ones, I'm not so sure how much messing around I want to do because I know they get pretty big in there. Yeah, the, yeah, the, um, the, the fish story I heard on that one is it was a good, you know, four feet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've seen a four-footer down there. <laughs> <laughs> right beside me. Even when it was yeah, lethargic, I, it wasn't yeah. moving. <laughs> I kind of lined, I was curious how long it was, so I lined my head up with his snout and I looked back and his tail fin was somewhere below my knee. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm not that I'm terribly tall, so I figured he's at least four foot long. Yeah. I I believe it. I I've yeah. I haven't seen anybody catch one, but I, I've heard I've heard the stories of the size that are out there. Right. Well, yeah. well before it gets too late we probably should jump into the news here. Uh we have just a few stories we won't go into any of them too long unless they we find them interesting. Uh, the first one I have here is that the uh, Bonaire scuba diving resorts are starting to put bounties on the lionfish down there. I guess the lionfish have become quite a bit of problem, and uh, they're actually encouraging the divers that are out there to to uh, mark the spots where they see them, and if they're able to capture them, they're getting credit. So uh, uh, they said that during a week you can receive an immediate $120 credit uh, when they spot a lionfish that is subsequently captured by the, the marine park official, and if a diver spots more than one of the invasion of, invasive creatures, he gets $60 credit per lionfish. Wow. Now, along those lines, I had heard that there, uh, um, the recipes are coming out for lionfish. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny that to talk about it, but we were talking about the invasive species, you know, some of the, the mussels and, and things that we're facing up here, but that's just as bad or worse for them down there. Um, the lionfish is, is not indigenous to that area, and it's even been coming up on the East Coast quite a bit. So you, you say recipes, you mean cooking recipes. Yeah, like actually. Grilled, grilled yeah. lionfish. Now, lion, yes. lionfish are a little poisonous. Um, yeah, the... the uh, the spines are. Okay. Um, I know when I had a marine tank, uh, they weren't something that you wanted to mess with. That's for sure. No, no. So I'm just I'm I'm th- I'm hoping that the recipe says you know, depoison. Yeah, and, and I don't know what's what's poisonous in them and not. I when mine was gone, he I didn't worry about trying to eat him. So. <laughs> uh, the, then the uh, the next article that we have up here is the Red Sea. Liveaboards dis- destroyed by a blaze. So uh, on uh, January 30th, they had a fire that took out a couple of the the uh, liveaboards that were undergoing some routine maintenance. Uh, it was, uh, you know, they operate in Egyptian waters. So if you happen to be a liveaboard diver, and uh, you know, it's one, you might want to in the Red Sea, and you might want to check to make sure that uh, you're still going out diving. They're supposed to be contacting everybody uh, this week to reconfirm some reservations, but it's a good thing to check into. And then we have a recall. The uh, Mayor Scuba Diving Company announces a, a safety recall of the Nemo Air Dive computer. Um, 
Mayor's Diving this morning announced a product safety recall, and I say this morning, it's of the article, uh, uh, on the, the, the scuba diving computer, and it says under certain circumstances, the O-ring can fail and cause a slow leak of breathing gas through the quick connector. So it looked like from the picture I saw, it was one of those diving computers where you got the quick connector onto, uh, onto the hose. So, and that was uh, a failed part, huh? And it was failed. So, I, I mean, it, you know, any time you're losing uh, your gas and you're, you're not expecting it, it can be a risk. But, you know, I, I'm thinking of all the recalls. This is not necessarily one that, you know, scares me. You definitely want to have it serviced. So if you happen to have one of those computers, uh, take it into your local dive sh- shop, and they're going to replace that O-ring, and they've got a kit that's available. So definitely don't dive on it. But, you know, it... it I don't know. I'm taking comfort in that it's not something catastrophic, you know, like it like blows apart or, you know, tells you to stay down too long. So, you know, uh, yeah, you wouldn't miss it. Yeah. So mayors did this in cooperation, the U S product safety commission. Uh, and then also down in, uh, the South Florida in the keys, they have that cold water temperatures is causing some coral bleaching. Uh, according to report, uh, released by the Nature Conservatory, uh, cold water temperatures over the last few months have caused damage to reefs popular with recreational scuba divers in South Florida and Florida, Florida Keys. So if you happen to be a diver down there, they're actually looking for people to help them document uh, the scope of the damage. Uh, the cold water bleaching and die-off hadn't occurred in Florida since the 1970s. So there is a history of this happening in before and specifically that's at 77, 78, which up here in Michigan that year is where we had the blizzards where they closed schools for weeks. So uh, that was when they had the last case of bleaching. So uh, I'm hoping that means we don't have a blizzard February. You know, things are all kind of interconnected. Right. And then uh, here's one that uh, it'd be interesting to see what Bob's take on it. There's a uh, a new rebreather training organization looks to move in the North American market. And this one's from DiveWire.com. Uh, recently, the scuba diving organization RAID, Rebreather Association of International Divers, started to move into the North American market. Uh, so... Uh, Bob, did you have to have any special training for the rebreather? Oh, yes. Uh, Every rebreather, there is training specific to that rebreather. So if you buy a rebreather, you will get training specifically on that rebreather. And if you buy would buy another one, you have to get what they call crossover training for that other type of rebreather. But that's usually, uh, that's like manufacturer training or the dive shop who sells that, provides that training? Yeah, yeah, uh, you, yeah. There's going to be there's instructors that the manufacturers will certify, and uh, or the manufacturers will certify, and then the various training agencies will go and uh, certify them also on that. Okay, I mean that makes sense. You know, you definitely don't want to have uh, you know the, the intricacies of a particular rebreather. You want to you want to be in tune with those and make sure you're handling properly mm-hmm. yeah most rebreathers are are you know there's a lot of different there's typically a lot of difference between the various rebreathers so uh you yeah you need to have the specific training for them so that's it for the news uh, nothing that was too terribly exciting that uh draw to our attention but just some some interesting things happening around the scuba world uh also 
you know, whenever I see an underwater sub, I think of Don. So uh, I, I had to bring up this last one. Uh, Richard Branson uh, of of the Virgin fame and fortune uh, unveiled his late, unveils his latest toy, which is an underwater plane called the Nymph. And uh, Jim, have you have you seen a picture of this yet? No, I haven't. Let me see if I can paste this in somewhere uh, and bring it up. But uh, yeah, that where that that last one that we saw a few weeks ago. I mean, that was interesting. But you know, if that is a a Jeep, this is you know the the Hummer or the Stretch limo. So well, you know, well, this guy has got. His empire is vast, and and he literally can do anything he would want to do. Oh, oh wow! Look oh, at yeah, that thing. Yeah, yeah, look at that. It's like, it looks like a, a jet. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the the picture is like a uh, it's a three seater uh, cockpit, and it, it it literally looks like an underwater jet. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. He's uh, it, it costs a mere five hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, which. You know, when you look at it, I mean that that actually that seems like a bargain. I mean, not that it's, not that <laughs> if we're I, spending Richard Branson's money, well, it seems yeah, like a yeah, bargain. It's not like I've got that kind of walking around money, you know. Right. You know, what, what, what that that would buy what a hundred rebreathers, but uh, still, I mean, when you think about uh, that, he, he built he had this pretty much built custom. You know, I'm, I'm sure the he, the company uh, Hawks Ocean Technologies has done stuff like this similar before but you know that that is something else and then you know ever the businessman uh he's it's just not for his own use so if you happen to be one of the guests on his private island you know he's gonna he's gonna let you use this but you know for a mere twenty five thousand. so you know and i guess if you're staying in his private island you know twenty five thousand a week to play around with his underwater jet uh right is, isn't going to be anything much at all right yeah, and people need to look that up and take a look at it. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, the uh, what was it that Evil Knievel uh, jumped over the Snake uh, Snake River Gorge on? Um, looks like a modern version of that thing. Yeah, yeah. So it, it can go down to 130 feet. Uh, you know, of course, it's going to hold a pilot and then two other people in it. And like the other one where you had scuba gear, this uh, looks to be something that you're contained in. So typical speed is two to five nautical miles per hour. But you know, if you can get down to 130 feet, I mean, that, that, that's that's got to be nice. So, yeah, uh, it, it'll be a little bit of time before I, I I'm going to have saved up for one if I start putting big my... boys toys. That's what that is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it'll take a while. So, you know, we just need to find some, some rich benefactor who, who just wants to donate something like that. <laughs> well, I, I think we've come to the end of another show. Uh, I'd like to thank Bob for coming on. Yes, thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. That's our pleasure, and you know we'll we'll have to have you on again. And what we need to do one of these times is maybe get you know two or three of the club members on at the same time, and maybe we'll have to 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 plan something where we have something to talk about. So we'll have an event. We'll all go out and do the event, and then come back and and come back on the show. Uh, next week's episode, we're going to have uh, Craig Rich, uh, who's an who's an author, and he's also happens to be. Do you know Craig Bob? Mm, name's up from there. Yeah, he, he's up there in Holland, but he's he's coming out with a new book, 
and uh, he's going to be on the show next week. The book he has out is For Those in Peril, uh, The Shipwrecks of Ottawa County, Michigan. And it's, it's currently available on pre-order, and it's going to be shipping in February. So sometime this month they'll be having it out. So uh, next week we're going to have him on, have him talk about the book and some of his diving experiences. So we're looking forward to that as well. So Yeah, have, it should be interesting. Do you have any last words, Jim? Uh, no, I'm just I'm looking forward to Saturday. Um, I didn't get a chance to dive last weekend, and uh, I am really looking forward to it. And uh, I think it's going to be a good time. And I think on top of the dive, we need to uh, scout a good place for coffee or a, a cup of soup afterwards because I think we're going to need it. <laughs> I think we will too. Uh, how about you, Bob? Otherwise close. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise close. So yeah, you, you probably get your get your coffee. <laughs> okay, well, uh, this is it for episode five. Hope everybody comes out and visits us for episode six. Until next time, about get wet. This is Darren. And this is Jim. Dive safe.